Thanks to those supportive listeners who threw me a few bucks using the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes, including Jim Paragoy, Brendan, Martha Farrell, and others. Your contributions help offset research and production costs and make me feel fuzzy all over. If money is tight and you still want to show some love for the podcast, make sure you follow, like, and review the podcast wherever you listen. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, the Communist Party in Chicago encouraged black women working in sweatshops to stand up for themselves and strike for better wages, better working conditions, and more. Today we're talking about the black women's worker strikes of the 1930s. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This episode comes as Black History Month is ending and Women's History Month begins and certainly has elements of both. Helping discuss this story with me today is Dr. Melissa A. Ford, Assistant Professor of History at Slippery Rock University in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, and author of the book A Brick and a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression. Melissa Ford, welcome. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I know you uh, have deep Midwest roots. Let's hear all about it. Yeah, I am. Uh, I was born in St. Louis and Missouri, obviously. I'm a Cardinals fan, so I just want to get that out there right now. Um, but uh, I went to grad school and St. Louis University and thinking that I was going to study, you know, theory and Marxism and what these big political philosophies and somehow I'll be a philosopher. But I took a class on African-American history and it exploded my brain. Um, the fact that there's African-American history in St. Louis talking about these issues that, you know, Marx was. They weren't using the same vocabulary. They weren't using the same words, but they're talking about the issues of race and class and the struggle for justice. Um, and so from there, my interest was piqued. And I was thinking, you know, if this is happening in St. Louis, where else? And so I discovered it's Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, across the Midwest, we have these Black workers who are organizing uh, and really making huge claims to ideas of social and racial justice. Um, and so my, my, my project started there. It's like, okay, St. Louis, then where else? And, um, and so that's why I really kind of focused on the Midwest is because no one else asked those questions. Um, and so I was really excited to, to bring Chicago into this, this conversation of the, the urban Midwest. You mentioned it kind of exploded your brain. Did you know about any of this when you were in grade school or high school? I think no, and that's the continuing refrain with Black history is is I didn't know this had happened for for St. Louisans. It kind of Black history kind of begins and ends with the Dred Scott case, um, and I know it's similar in other districts around the the country. And I don't blame the teachers. There's a lot, and it's really hard things to teach. How do you teach racism and hatred to an eight year old? But I think it's these moments of huge social unrest and claiming those rights and in being in finding success like we see in the 1930s from these black workers those are the stories we can teach to eight-year-olds and be like hey guess what when this woman was out of work she organized a protest she got together with her friends she asserted her demands and guess what they won that's a story we could tell 
Please talk a little bit about the American Communist Party and the Trade Union Unity League and how uh, it appealed or why it appealed to workers in Chicago back in the uh, 1930s. Yeah, thank you. It's such a great question, kind of fundamental and foundational to the rest of my study is in 1929, the American Communist Party basically decided that race and gender are going to be important issues. Prior to that, of course, there had been some involvement of black workers, there had been some women in the Communist Party, but basically in 1929, uh, they come together and say, you know, this is a moment where we can embrace black women as agents of revolutionary change. Uh, and so the Trade Union Unity League, uh, which was born out of the Trade Union Education League, which is, there's just too many acronyms to really keep them straight. But what we're basically seeing now is white communists in urban Midwestern cities look around and say, how can we help black women organize? How can we get them into unions? How can we get them into situations where they can advocate for their rights as, as black women, as workers? And so what we see in places like Chicago is this real kind of setting a foundation and building block by block this uh, this movement. You mentioned a mother yelling to her children, run quick and find the Reds. What did that mean? Right. So that's kind of that's kind of like this this brick by brick uh, of the movement. Uh, 1930 Chicago, I mean, Black Chicago was hit quickly and devastatingly, right? Black workers were twice as likely to be unemployed as white workers. Uh, South Side in particular was devastated. Uh, people couldn't afford their rent. And so evictions were common. There are thousands of evictions uh, in Chicago uh, a year. And so what we often saw was when a family was being evicted, it was the Reds, the communists, the radicals who were coming to the aid of these, these families. And so this is kind of what uh, the Communist Party has been primed for, has been ready to do, is advocate on behalf of these Black workers who hadn't yet been involved in the party, but were absolutely ready to be involved. And so so the story goes that, you know, a family's being evicted, uh, run quick and get the communists because then the communists will come bring in huge numbers. And what they did in evictions such as this, they would just start carrying the furniture back in. They would pass a hat for collections to help get the rent paid. They would just be there en masse, right, advocating for this, this Black family. And so this was huge, right? Nobody had advocated for, for Black families to this extent before. And the fact that it's happening in the Great Depression, when we're seeing thousands of people out of work, thousands of people uh, homeless, thousands of people being um, evicted, right? This, is, this sends a really strong message to, to Black Chicagoans. Before the big strike here in Chicago that we'll get to in a minute, there was something called the St. Louis Funston Nutpickers Strike, which rolls right off the tongue. Uh, please talk a little bit about that. Right. So St. Louis, this is another thing we didn't talk about in school, but apparently St. Louis was once the nutpicking capital of the United States, uh, which means uh, that workers picked the nut meat out of shells. And so uh, there were majority uh, black women working in these uh, factories, over a thousand black women who were being treated despicably. Uh, they had seen their wages absolutely thrashed since the Great Depression began. Uh, they were paid pennies for what white women were paid. They were made to do harder tasks. They were working in horrible working conditions. And so what we see is local white communists start to help get these women together and form their demands, organize, um, and 
stage a successful strike. And so this is in May 1933 and takes about two weeks, but eventually they win all their demands. It's huge. It electrifies the Communist Party, especially when it comes to issues regarding race and gender. And so then it's literally weeks later, we see the Chicago workers go on strike. And so the, the Sapkin factor, it's, it's, a, it's so crazy because it's such a similar story. We have over a thousand black women working in this factory where it's terrible working conditions, right? They, they often don't have working bathrooms or uh, they don't have running water. They are treated like, like crap, right? They're yelled at. Um, often the white foreman will walk in on them in the bathroom. Their, their wages are, again, just being decimated uh, after the Great Depression. And so we have like this same kind of, you know, it rhymes. It, this is not unfamiliar. And so when we have the communists in the area uh, begin to make inroads with these women, and one woman in particular, Romania Ferguson, who is a black woman uh, communist herself, able to kind of get these women together and say, hey, there are ways that when we're con connected, when we're unified, we can push demands. And guess what? They did it in St. Louis. We can do it in Chicago. And so the refrain becomes, do as the nutpickers did. And so it's kind of like this wave, this trend uh, of Black women workers unionizing in the Midwest in the 1930s. And it's so unexpected. But um, as a historian, it's so rewarding to kind of see those stories and be like, ah, oh, there it is. Something is uh, is inspiring about these these, these moments. What was the initial appeal to Black women about working in the Sopkin Garment Factory? And that's where it's so hard for us. It's like, why would you endure such conditions, right? You're being violated as a worker, as a woman. Uh, what? Why would you stay? And first part is industrial work like this was considered a step up for many Black women. Domestic service was and had been the main job for Black women for the majority of, of American history. And so industrial work, factory work was was steady work. It had steady hours. Um, and it's very appealing because it wasn't steeped in this legacy of, of, uh, of being a servant or uh, it, honestly, the, the legacy of slavery, of serving a white man or a white woman. Factory work, different. And so, yeah, we do see there's a real trend across the United States of, of Black workers, specifically Black women, wanting this work. Uh, the other thing is, it was the Great Depression. You held on to whatever job you could get. So these women were desperate. Well, and I think I had read in, in something you had written uh, that women had the chance to learn a trade. So instead of just working around someone's house, being a domestic uh, you know, a helper, they had a chance to learn a trade and maybe work their way up. At least that was kind of the promise that they were uh, given and you know, didn't quite work out the way that they had uh, expected. Of course, promises are dime a dozen, right? Yes. So by the time the women in the Sopkin garment factory were getting fed up, what kind of demands did they did they make? What, what did they want to see changed uh, in order to keep them from uh, walking out? So these demands are something sometimes just so infuriating because they're so simple. Uh, they wanted a a raise, a wage raise. Uh, they wanted better and safer working conditions. So like locks on the bathroom door. 
and that's just so offensive to us uh, today. Uh, things like running water when it was really hot. I Chicago gets kind of hot in the summers, and uh, that wasn't always uh, available to them. They wanted a uh, a nurse or a social worker on scene at the factory workplace because women would get hurt. They would pass out from exhaustion, and the company policy was to just let them sleep it out on the floor. And so these women wanted this some sort of health con uh, protection, um, better working conditions and established hours. I mean, these are uh, iterations of claims we see from workers today. They're not new. The, these women aren't the first to make these claims, but they are uh, Black women workers in a very specific industry and at a very specific time and place. So by the time the workers were ready to walk out how many how many women are we talking about? How many strikers are we talking about? And uh, what what kind of response did they see? We're we're talking about twelve hundred to fifteen sixteen hundred uh, women. Not all of them were black. They did have some white allies. Um, it will be a um, controversial, let's just say, move uh, on Chicago South Side because you have. Black politicians like Oscar DePriest. I mean, he's a black politician. He's in the House of Representatives. It's this huge claim to have a black politician from Chicago. But he and the communists did not get along. And so when the communists come into his neighborhood, organize these black women, there's pushback from us, uh, from DePriest. And so there's this one story of DePriest is giving a speech in a, in a meeting hall and he's talking to the striking women and there's hundreds of them and, and they know him. He's their representative. And he's talking to them and saying, you know, we need to come to the table. We need to, we need to compromise. Don't ask for too much. And the black women are like, what? <laughs> Screw this. And they started chanting, uh, we want Gersh. And Gersh was a communist organizer. So they basically booed the priest off stage in favor of a white communist. And so this was a real reaction to the kind of middle-class respectability, middle-class liberal politics that DePriest and other Black Chicagoans have been kind of maintaining throughout the Great Depression. Because for the working class people, for these Sopkin workers, it wasn't good enough anymore, right? Uh, it's not good enough to, to work through the system and, you know, vote and do your job as an American citizen. No, there has to be some other push. There has to be some other momentum. And the Communist Party was offering that. So the factory owner, Benjamin Sopkin, what was his reaction to the strike? All of these super angry women, everyone's going to walk out. Obviously, the press could not have been great back then. Uh, what was his reaction to all of this activity? Oh, he's shocked. He's, how did this come to happen? I had no idea, right? And that's the reaction you see. All this is That's not new. That's what we saw in uh, Funston in St. Louis as well. Um, and that's obviously false, right? Labor allegations, uh, labor abuse allegations had been prevalent in the factories since the 1910s. The, the shops were known as the Sopkin sweatshops because everybody on the South Side knew they were awful. And so he, he goes out and he's like, what? We've always, we've always, we've always been nice to our, our, our women workers. We've, we've been like a father to them. And so he offers this incredibly paternalistic uh, viewpoint of these women are so lucky to be working at my machines. We are, I am such a giving man to let them make me a profit. 
and there's a, there's an article that comes out a few years later reflecting on this strike uh, by Tyra Edwards, and she's a so- social worker on the South Side. And she looks at this and she goes, well, so did the old master in times of slavery. And so directly comparing Sopkin to a slave master and really her comparison and many of the arguments she makes are 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 apt. Um, and so Sopkin is just he's a, he's painted as a real villain. The communist, I think they like had a uh, infiltrator or some sort of uh, surveillance on him. And they tracked his daily activities and uh, talked about how he went to the golf club and ate like a uh, really extravagant dinner. And then he drove in his rich car. And so they really paint him as a villain. And that helped, right? That helped get uh, galvanized support on the South side, which we eventually do see the, this, this way to the, the strikers and in uh, co- coordination, the, the communists. So did the striking African-American workers have support from uh, the white population in Chicago or was it kind of an isolated thing other than the strikers and the communists? It depends. Uh, Chicago, as you know, has this history of radical organizing, this radical tradition. It's the home of the Haymarket. Home of, I mean, if you're talking Eugene Debs, huge labor, uh, rich labor history. And then only that, you also have uh, this kind of social reform history. If you're thinking about Jane Addams and Hull House, then you're adding to that this the amazing educational uh, institutions. You think University of Chicago on the South Side. It's like these are all layers uh, of uh, whites, uh, Chicagoans who are sympathetic. And so while we don't have like a huge rally, we do have individual people. There's a, a story of a white professor from University of Chicago who comes to the strike line and he's looking at these women striking and he's he's like, yeah, supporting them. You do your thing. And uh, when the cops start pushing the women around, this white professor is like, stop. What are you doing? Women, you got your, you have your rights, stand in line. And the cops arrest him. And so he spends a night in jail because he supports uh, the black women workers. And so this is a white, uh, older professor from a university uh, supporting these black women in a very public way. And of course, him being arrested is news. That's headlines. And so that does great, great work to add sympathy to the cause. And like the New York Times starts to cover it because of that. And so he actually was a resident of Hull House. And again, so that that kind of tradition of of labor um, and reform in Chicago really did help bring out that middle class white support. Your book is called A Brick and a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression. I guess you got paid based on the word. Um, (laughs) Please tell us about the title. It used to be longer. (laughs) It originally was... A Bible in one hand, a brick in the other, Black women's radical activism and so forth. Um, and this goes back to the story in St. Louis. Uh, as the story goes, the strike is being led by a, a middle-aged Black woman named Carrie Smith. And she's kind of like your everyday Midwestern woman at the time, right? She goes to church. She has She's involved in her community. She's been a good worker. And she's tapped as this leader of the strike. And she emerges as a natural organizer. She is passionate. She is communicative. She is building this unity. And the story goes, she's on the steps of City Hall. They're having a rally. They're trying to get support up. And she has a Bible in one hand because she she brings her Bible, right? She's a Christian woman. She's, I mean, like most Black women during this time, she's leading them in prayer and singing hymns. So she has her Bible in one hand, and then she's a brick in the other. And this brick was used as self-defense. In St. Louis and Chicago in particular, uh, Black women on the strike lines were 
often victimized by the police. Fortunately, we don't have any any deaths and the casualties are not reported as much, but we do know that uh, women were injured and went to the hospital. And so bricks were often carried as a sort of defense mechanism. And so here's Carrie Smith, middle-aged, nutpicker, leading a strike with a brick in one hand and a Bible in the other hand, saying, girls, if we stick together, we cannot lose. And so as I was writing this, like, I couldn't get that image out of my mind because like the Bible is her past, her lived experience, everything she knows about being a woman, uh, a black woman living in this time and place. And then the brick here is that militancy, that point of no return for her of this is my time for action. So with the brick and the Bible, uh, that's where we get this really incredible moment in the 1930s of, of black women and um, community and labor organizing. It really does paint quite an image uh, in the mind. So uh, I like it uh, quite a bit. Uh, yes. In 1937, Benjamin Sopkin's son, Lewis, took over operations of the company. Were there any issues? And of course, this is completely leading. Were there any issues that arose from the uh, change in leadership? Yeah, Lewis was n- no better. <laughs> Let's just say that. The legacy of the strike, the 1933 strike, is complicated because it was touted as a victory. I mean, the women did win higher wages and uh, better conditions and bathrooms and things like that, but the union wasn't recognized. And then we have kind of the death of the communist-led unions. So the Trade Union Unity League kind of fades out because we have the rise of other unions, um, more mainstream unions, uh, like the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU, uh, which comes in full force in 1930s and leads a national strike with tens of thousands of people. And so uh, they still have a hard time getting organized and recognized in in Chicago and in Sopkin, uh, Sopkin factories. And so what we'll see is Lewis still fight this. He'll continue to fight the union. And eventually when it is recognized, uh, we'll see he just up and moves the factories. Uh, They go to Massachusetts where there's a tradition of textile work and uh, labor abuses. um, But at least there they weren't organizing with communists. Uh, and so, honestly, we saw the same thing in, in St. Louis. They moved the factories. And so this was the way to deal with labor unrest, unfortunately, and left hundreds of women out of work during the Great Depression. If there was someone that you uh, have written about in your book that you could talk to today, if they were still around, who would it be? It could be Tyra Edwards. And she's the woman I mentioned earlier. She's a, she was a black social worker, um, but she was born in Texas, came to Chicago to do social work, but then started getting involved in these really radical movements. Uh, and she kind of, she wasn't a communist. She has a, there's a file in her, her archives where she was interviewed by the FBI and she's saying, I'm not a communist and blah, blah, blah. But she was running in those same circles um, and advocating for very similar things like how race, class, gender all intersect and make uh, Black women as very powerful agents of revolutionary change. Uh, She was making arguments that, you know, social work has to go beyond just those immediate uh, fulfillment of uh, nutrition and schooling, but this idea of empowerment of the Black community, so being able to build from within. She goes and studies in Europe, in labor universities in Denmark. She leads tours uh, of uh, educators in Mexico. She is in on the ground floor in the Spanish Civil War. She is like 
everywhere and kicking ass doing it. And uh, she's a really important figure for me and for Chicago. It's because Chicago radicalizes her. This experience with the 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 Sopkin uh, apron makers, the strike makes her more radical. She sees how these women are being treated and says like, this is something that we have to change. And she's really inspiring. I think she'd just be really cool to talk to. Uh, unfortunately, she died. She did die early. Um, she eventually moved to New York, but I think a really important figure in American history that uh, love, love to talk to. Melissa Ford's book, a Brick in a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression is available now. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share these stories. listening to today's episode about the black women's worker strikes of the 1930s special thanks to my guest melissa a ford find out more about dr ford including where to get her book a brick in a bible black women's radical activism in the midwest during the great depression at the links in the show's notes as always if you have questions about anything covered today anything to add or have an idea for a future episode i'd love to hear about it Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider, gracias amigo. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.